Arizona Torso Murder Number 2. The story of Marjorie Orban is eerily similar to the Valerie Pape story. It took place just four years and seven months after the Valerie Pape murder in the same city, Scottsdale, Arizona. The body was found in a similar condition, a dismembered torso, and both killers were trophy wives of wealthy men. It makes you wonder if she was mimicking the Valerie Pape case. Marjorie Orban led a somewhat extraordinary life. To hear her say it, calling her just a stripper would be unfairly downplaying her career. Yes, she did some stripping, but in her mind, she was also a talented dancer, a showgirl, and a choreographer. She officially began her dancing career when she was just 18 in Orlando, Florida, where she danced at a downtown tourist attraction called Church Street Station. She performed line dances, jazz, and clogging routines. Marjorie was extremely ambitious, and within a year she was choreographing the routines and was promoted to be the manager of another location called Cheyenne Station. Marjorie had always dreamed of being a mother, but at just 18 she was diagnosed with endometriosis, a painful disorder that affects the lining of the uterus. Though pregnancy is possible with endometriosis patients, it is highly unlikely, and she was told that she could not have children. This news was a severe disappointment to Marjorie, and at that moment she decided that since she couldn't lead a life for her children, she would solely live her life for herself and her career. I could walk out of any situation. That may sound cold and callous, but the only person I needed to worry about was me. Relationships came one after the other, and Marjorie found herself hopping from man to man. By the time she was 35 years old, she'd been married and divorced six times. Most of the time, she'd already found another lover before divorcing the previous husband. In 1985, before the ink was dry on her second divorce, Marjorie found herself living with a hairdresser named Luke. Luke came from a rich family that offered him a condo if he moved back home to Cincinnati. Marjorie quit her job and followed Luke. As they drove across the country, Luke got news that the condo wouldn't be ready for another month, so he suggested they go to Las Vegas temporarily. He had friends with a salon that he could work at for a few weeks until the Cincinnati condo was ready for them. Luke ended up gambling away their $8,000 savings, and the salon job was non-existent. Marjorie packed her car and left to go back to Florida, but her car didn't last long. As she drove through Phoenix, Arizona, her car broke down and needed an expensive part that would take 10 days to fix. Marjorie was unsure how she was going to pay for the repair when she noticed a strip club called Bourbon Street Circus and applied for a job. At this point, she'd never done any stripping, but it came naturally for her. Though she was classically trained in dance, she quickly realized she could work the pole better than any of the other girls. Marjorie was statuesque and beautiful, with platinum blonde hair, long legs, and a flawless body. Within days, she was easily the most popular dancer in the club. The patrons were infatuated with her, and she was making $500 to $600 per night. One of those patrons was 26-year-old Jay Orban. Jay Orban was a regular at Bourbon Street Circus, and almost every other strip club in the Phoenix area. He was well-known by strippers and club management as one of the best customers. Jay was on the chubby side and with not the greatest fashion sense. 
known for his balding, thick, curly, black hair, rosy cheeks, cowboy boots, and his diamond pinky ring, he came across looking much like a used car salesman. But according to his friends, Jay was funny, charming, and had a heart of gold. Jay had his own business, Jayhawk International, selling Native American items like turquoise jewelry, kachina dolls, maps, and bows and arrows. His work was profitable, and it took him all over the country on sales calls. He was out of town three out of four weeks per month and spent his free time in strip clubs all over the country. Jay had dated many strippers throughout the years, but he was completely captivated by Marjorie. He would come to see her dance and buy her drinks every chance he got. Though he would ask to see her outside of the club, she refused, but he persisted. After about two months, she agreed to go on an afternoon date with him. Despite his persistence, she still didn't see herself attracted to him. He was very nice, but not exactly her type. Eventually, he paid for her car to get fixed and offered to let her move into his home. Marjorie had been paying to live at a hotel, and he offered to let her stay in a spare room at his house for free. He was gone, traveling the country most of the time anyway. She agreed and moved in with him. Though Jay tried to get her to be romantic with him, at one point proposing marriage, Marjorie wanted more from her life and eventually moved back to Florida, and through the years the two of them lost contact. While back in Florida, Marjorie dated Michael J. Peter. Michael was well known the world over for transforming the strip club industry. He took the industry from taboo to mainstream, he bought strip clubs all over the world and made billions. For a short time, the two were engaged. Marjorie traveled the world with him, and he gave her a role in his low-budget, unwatchable movie, No More Dirty Deals, and got her a small spot in Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls video. The song became an anthem at strip clubs around the world. Marjorie was the choreographer in his clubs, though the strip clubs didn't have much in the way of choreography. Like all of Marjorie's relationships, it didn't last forever. The two stayed on good terms, but Marjorie eventually made her way back to Las Vegas. Years later, in 1993, Jay was on a business trip driving through Las Vegas when he noticed a billboard for an adult review at one of the big casinos. He instantly recognized Marjorie on the advertisement and bought tickets for the show that night. In the years that had passed, Marjorie had become a Vegas showgirl and choreographer for adult review shows. The two met, and Jay realized he still felt the same as he did years before. Both Marjorie and Jay were making good money by now, but what Marjorie still wanted more than anything was to have a family. Realizing this, Jay proposed marriage again, but this time he had a plan. He told her that she could move to Scottsdale, Arizona with him, quit stripping, and that he would pay for fertility treatments until she got pregnant. Marjorie liked this idea. In 1994, Jay and Marjorie got married at the Little White Wedding Chapel in Las Vegas, the same chapel used by celebrities like Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Bruce Willis, and Britney Spears. Despite her diagnosis, the fertility treatment worked, and they had a son named Noah in August 1996. Though their relationship was doing well, Marjorie had sizable debt and was having problems paying the Internal Revenue Service. 
To protect Jay's business assets from being seized by the IRS, they got divorced but still remained together. For almost 10 years, Marjorie Orban lived the life of a normal suburban housewife raising her son while Jay traveled the country on sales calls. Though this marriage lasted much longer than the previous six marriages, like the others, she became bored and started seeking other men. Her infidelity started in 2004. The first was her son's 18-year-old karate instructor. The second was a 60-year-old bodybuilder she met at the gym, Larry Weisberg. With Jay being on the road three weeks every month, it was easy for Marjorie to hide her affair from Jay. While Jay was gone, Larry would live at the house with Marjorie full-time. August 28, 2004 was their son Noah's eighth birthday. After the birthday party, Jay was again on the road. This time he was on his way to Florida for three weeks. But once Jay got halfway to Florida, Hurricane Francis had grown too large and he turned around and came back home. With this change, he could make it back to Phoenix and be home by his own birthday, September 8th. On the afternoon of September 8th, as he was pulling into the Phoenix area, Jay called his parents. He normally spoke to his family several times a week. He told his mother that the trip was cut short and that he was almost back home, just in time for his 45th birthday. He told her that he was almost home and would call her back later in the day. She never got that call. Over the next week, when friends and family hadn't heard from Jay on his birthday, they got worried and called Marjorie. Marjorie wasn't worried at all. She said that Jay hadn't come home. She said that he had called her and said he had to go to another sales trip and wouldn't be back until September 22nd. She told them she hadn't seen him since their son's birthday on August 28th. In the weeks that followed, Jay's family and friends were getting more and more worried, but Marjorie wasn't concerned. On September 20th, several of Jay's friends received calls from Jay's cell phone, but there was nobody at the other end. When September 22nd rolled around and Jay still hadn't come home or even called, they pressured her to finally calling the police and report him missing. Reluctantly, she called. Though Marjorie had reported Jay missing, she was frequently unavailable to discuss the matter with police. Police needed the license plate number of Jay's Ford Bronco so they could use plate recognition to look for it. By September 28th, police had left three messages for Marjorie but she wasn't returning calls. When Detective Jan Butcher of the Missing Persons Unit finally got Marjorie on the phone, she was combative. Butcher, I kind of get the feeling that you're really not available and willing to help us out trying to locate Marjorie. I speak more matter-of-factly. That does not mean I do not care. Just because I'm not running around crying and in hysteria doesn't mean that I'm not concerned and not doing anything. Because of her reluctance to help and defensive posturing, police were suspicious of Marjorie from the very beginning. When police checked Jay's bank account and credit cards, they realized large amounts of money were being pulled out of his accounts. The signatures on the receipts were Jay Orban, but they quickly realized that it wasn't him that was signing them, but Marjorie. Within days of Jay being missing, Marjorie had been pulling out the maximum amount from ATMs every day. When asked about this, Marjorie says she needed the cash to pay bills, but when police noticed that she bought a baby grand piano for almost $12,000, that raised even more red flags. Starting from September 9th, the day after Jay went missing, 
Marjorie pulled out over $100,000 from Jay's accounts and over $45,000 from his business accounts. She was also selling merchandise from Jay's business. When police found out that Jay had a $1 million insurance policy with Marjorie as the beneficiary, they knew this situation was going to end badly. Detective Butcher called Marjorie to ask her to come to take a polygraph test. Her tone became even more combative. Butcher, can we schedule to take a polygraph tomorrow? Marjorie, she wants me to take a polygraph tomorrow. Speaking to someone else in the room. Larry, you tell her to go fuck herself. Butcher, who's that? Marjorie, none of your fucking business. It's a friend of mine. Is this conversation being recorded? Butcher, yes it is. Marjorie, it is. Okay, I would like a copy of that. After the phone negotiations proved to be unproductive, Scottsdale police obtained a search warrant for Jay Orban's house. When the SWAT team broke down the door to the Orban home, they were attacked by a well-built man. That man was Larry Weisberg, Marjorie's bodybuilder boyfriend. When Larry attacked the SWAT team, they quickly tased him and hit him in the face, breaking his nose. Once inside the house, they found business credit cards and checkbooks that Jay Orban normally used on his business trips. Detective Butcher now believed that this was not just a missing person investigation. Everything she knew pointed to it being a homicide. On October 23rd, on the corner of Tatum Road and Dynamite Road, a transient was roaming around a piece of Arizona State Trust land in the desert just 50 feet from the road. Though it was desert, it wasn't remote. The roads were busy and housing developments were only a few hundred feet away. The man came across a large object wrapped in plastic garbage bags and sealed with tape. He pulled the tape off and ripped the black plastic. Inside, he found a large blue Rubbermaid storage container. When he opened the lid to the container, he stumbled back in shock. Besides the horrible stench, he was shocked to see a belt buckle and the hairy belly of a man. The man immediately ran to a nearby store and called police. When the police arrived, they realized it wasn't a full body, but only half a torso. The body had been cut just below the ribcage, and the legs had been severed at the knees. They could clearly tell it was a man by the hair on the belly. The internal organs of the lower half of the torso had been removed. The body had been dismembered while clothed, still wearing jeans and a brown leather belt. At the bottom of the container, they found a thirty-eight caliber bullet, mixed currency totaling $459.10, and a key ring with 11 keys. The Rubbermaid container was new and still had the UPC sticker on the bottom. During the autopsy, the medical examiner determined that the body had been previously frozen for an extended period before it was dismembered. From the markings on the bones, they could tell that the body had been dismembered with a saw of some sort. Six weeks after Jay Orban went missing, they now believed that they had found his remains just a few miles from his home. DNA tests later confirmed their suspicions. They also believed that Marjorie Orban placed the torso there because she wanted the body to be found. In order for her to collect the $1 million insurance claim, Jay had to be officially dead, not just missing. 
Two days after the torso was found, Jay Orban's green Ford Bronco was found parked in a residential neighborhood just a few blocks from their home. Detectives took the keys that were found in the bottom of the Rubbermaid container, and as they suspected, the keys opened and started the Bronco. The remaining keys opened the Orban home in Jay's office. Three witnesses from the neighborhood told police they saw a woman matching Marjorie's description near the Bronco around the time of September 8th. Three weeks after Jay's body was found, police brought Marjorie in for questioning. Not for Jay's murder, but for forging his signature when she bought computers at a Circuit City electronics store. Marjorie claimed that she had been signing his name for years and didn't realize there was anything wrong with using his credit cards after his death. The more investigating the police did, the more evidence started to mount up. When searching the Orban home, they found a receipt for Lowe's Hardware Store dated two days after Jay went missing. On the receipt for that purchase were a slew of mops, various cleaning products, black plastic bags, and two 50-gallon blue Rubbermaid containers. They were exactly the same type of container that they found Jay's disemboweled torso in. In fact, the UPC code on the container they found was exactly the same as what was on the receipt. But the most important piece of evidence was videotape they acquired at the Lowe's store dated September 10th. The tape showed Marjorie at the checkout counter, purchasing the murder cleanup supplies, and it clearly showed her purchasing large blue containers. In Jay's office, police found a package of jigsaw blades. The package was missing two blades. The medical examiner determined that the cutting pattern on his bones was consistent with that of the blades. Back at the Orban home, they found that the garage floor had recently been acid washed and a layer of thick decorative epoxy had been put over the cement, eliminating any chance of finding trace forensic evidence. On December 6, 2004, Marjorie Orban was arrested at her home, charged with first-degree murder, fraud, and theft. She was held without bail, and their son Noah was sent to live with Jay's parents. Initially, Larry Weisberg was also a suspect. A search of his home and vehicle showed that he had access to the Orban home. He had a garage door opener for their garage in his vehicle, so he had the means, but there was no hard evidence against him. All of the evidence pointed directly to Marjorie. With a first-degree murder charge in the state of Arizona, she now faced the possibility of the death penalty. In a controversial move, the prosecution gave Larry Weisberg full immunity in the case if he testified against Marjorie. Faced with the overwhelming evidence against her, Marjorie's attorneys advised her to take a plea deal to a lesser charge to avoid the death penalty. She refused. I will never let my son hear me say that I did this to his father. I'll let them kill me first. Marjorie spent four years in prison awaiting trial. During the trial, the defense tried to explain that Jay Orban weighed 250 pounds and that it would have been too physically demanding for Marjorie to dismember and move a body that large. But Marjorie wasn't exactly petite. She was a tall, strong woman that worked out at the gym religiously. The defense also tried to claim that Larry Weisberg was responsible for Jay's death, but they offered no evidence for that. 
The defense pointed out that he was aggressive enough to confront a SWAT team, and as a bodybuilder, he was certainly strong enough to dispose of a body. The prosecutors countered that defense by saying Larry Weisberg was just another in Marjorie's long list of infidelities that she used. They also pointed out that investigators found no evidence that Larry was involved in the murder at all. The prosecution also brought in the 19-year-old karate instructor that she was sleeping with and her former friends that claimed she often talked badly of Jay. The karate instructor and Larry Weisberg both claimed that Marjorie was skilled in the art of seduction. The prosecution also called her cellmate from prison, Sophia Johnson, to the stand. Sophia said that Marjorie had often complained to her that Jay was fat and disgusting. Sophia claimed that Marjorie confessed to her that she shot Jay, froze his body, thawed the corpse, then cut off his arms and legs and head. The only witnesses called by the defense was a character witness, Marjorie's former billionaire lover, Michael J. Peter. Peter painted a glowing picture of Marjorie as a good, loving mother, but it wasn't enough to sway the jury. The trial lasted eight months but it took only seven hours for the jury to come back with a guilty verdict. As Judge Arthur Anderson handed down the sentence to Marjorie, he compared her case to yet another Arizona killer, Winnie Ruth Judd, who murdered and dismembered her two friends in 1931 and stuffed the remains into steamer trunks. At the sentencing on October 1, 2009, Marjorie had her son to thank for avoiding the death penalty. The jury chose to sentence her to life in prison without the chance of parole rather than death. We all decided that the son is the innocent victim here. We all walked out of there feeling good. Juror Stan Brown. This is what we wanted all along. From the beginning, we didn't want to kill the boy's mother, and we wanted life. Jay Orban's brother, Jake Orban. To this day, Marjorie Orban claims that Larry Weisberg shot Jay Orban in the garage of their home and that she never saw Jay's dead body and certainly didn't dismember or dispose of the body. Marjorie admitted that she helped cover up the murder, but she didn't kill him. She claimed to TV crews of the show 48 Hours that Weisberg was a very violent man and shot Jay in their garage. She said that Larry threatened to kill her son if she told the police that he did it. She claimed that he told her, It's just that easy to snap that kid's scrawny neck if you don't do what you're told. Though she claimed that Larry threatened her to TV crews, she never told this story to the police. Currently, Marjorie's profile on writeaprisoner.com reads, Growing up in Miami, the sunshine and water were a big part of my life playing on the beaches, diving, surfing, sailing, playing beach volleyball. The little girl in ballet class was the start of a lifelong love of dance. I had quite a career as a professional dancer and choreographer, from Disney World to cruise ships in Las Vegas shows, Paris, Japan, Germany, even dancing on rock videos, Motley Crue, Girls, 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 traveling all over the world. I had many exciting adventures. Then, one unforeseen incident changed everything. But even now, I do my best to be positive and create a meaningful life for myself. I am strong and healthy and active. I teach aerobics classes. I am tall, slender, and have long blonde hair. I have a pretty silly sense of humor sometimes. 
I read, watch trashy TV, and stay out of drama. I miss traveling, good food, the ocean, interesting friends, and romance. I would love to meet new friends from the real world who might share their adventures or maybe just talk. Please write to me directly, Marjorie. Thanks for listening to True Crime Sleep Stories. If you aren't asleep yet, consider following the show. Maybe our next story will give you the peace of mind you desperately need. Or not.